Hamilton's early years are murky. Historians debate the details. Yet there can be no doubt that he's the only founding father whose mother, Rachel Fawcett, was accused in court of whoring with everyone. This wasn't a happy home. This wasn't a happy place. On the Caribbean island of St. Croix, several years before Hamilton's birth, Rachel was twice guilty of adultery, according to her first husband, which in those enlightened times gave him the legal right to toss her into prison. So he locked her in a dungeon. I've been inside the prison cell. It's dark, hot, and has a tiny window that looks out on the clear blue sea almost as a taunt. With Rachel behind bars, her husband hoped that everything would change to the better and that she, as a wedded wife, would change her unholy way of life and live with him. Ah, true love. He let her out of jail. Somehow the plan backfired. The dungeon failed to melt her heart, and Rachel fled and didn't look back. She took a ferry to an even smaller island, St. Kitts, that throbbed with the sugar and slave trades. She met a Scot named James Hamilton. On an even smaller island, Nevis, Rachel gave birth to two boys, one named Alexander. She was still married to the dungeon master of a first husband, however, which meant that Alexander Hamilton technically was born a bastard. The first husband eventually filed for a separation. The divorce papers called her shameless, rude, and ungodly, and the mother of poor children. The family soon moved back to St. Croix. The island was brutal. Alexander, or Alex, as he was called as a toddler, grew up in a land that had 90% of its population chained in slavery. The slaves made the sugar. The whites lived in fear of slave rebellions. By law, every white man had to be armed with a gun, 16 cartridges with balls, and a sword or cutlass, explains biographer James Flexner. To keep terror perpetually alive among the blacks, it was legislated that if a slave struck a white man, he would lose the hand he struck it with. If he drew blood, he could be executed. Then things took a turn for the worse. Alex's father went bankrupt and left home. Historians still aren't sure why. Then the family got sick. Rachel caught tropical fever, confining her to a bed that would drip with blood, sweat, and vomit. The house had only one bed, which meant that Alex either slept next to his coughing mother or he slept on the floor. The doctors treated Rachel with bloodletting and alcohol for her head. He was 11 when she died. The probate court ruled that Alex would get nothing from her modest estate, as he and his brother were obscene children. Then things took a turn for the worse. Alex's cousin volunteered to look after the boys, but for reasons still unknown, he committed suicide. The legal record states that he stabbed or shot himself to death. His grandmother died, his uncle died, his aunt died. Yet, Alex refused to think like a victim. When he was just 12 years old, he wrote to his friend Edward Stevens, or Nettie, declaring, my ambition is so prevalent that I contemn the groveling and condition of a clerk to which my fortune condemns me and would willingly risk my life, though not my character, to exalt my station. 
he ends the letter on one of history's great non-sequiturs. I shall conclude saying, I wish there was a war. It's Hamilton's oldest surviving letter. Even as a child, he burned with the desire to do whatever it takes, work harder, get smarter, prove valor on a battlefield, to improve himself, so long as it did not compromise his honor. There's one more lesson here. The letter contains another, trickier, more archaic passage that isn't quoted as often. I'm confident, Ned, that my youth excludes me from any hopes of immediate preferment, nor do I desire it, but I mean to prepare the way for futurity. My folly makes me ashamed, and I beg you'll conceal it. Yet, Nettie, we have seen such schemes successful when the projector is constant. Okay, some real talk. On the first read, that paragraph is nearly incomprehensible. Yet, it contains the keys to Hamilton's playbook. Douglas Hamilton, the fifth great-grandson, thinks of this advice all the time. He lives by it, and he shares it with his grandchildren, who are often baffled. People ask me, projector? What the hell does that even mean? Let's look at the sentence again. We have seen such schemes successful when the projector is constant. The projector is the thing that is projecting an outcome, the thing doing the work. You. If the projector is constant, with steady work, then you can prepare yourself for a better future. This is how you rise above your station. He had no parents, no inheritance, no formal education, and no obvious path to success. Yet he knew it was possible. He believed. From the very beginning, it would always be Alexander Hamilton against the world. That's a fair fight.